The Holy Gospel according to Mark, the eighth chapter. Glory to you, O Lord. Jesus and the disciples went on and passed through Galilee. He did not want anyone to know it, for he was teaching his disciples, saying to them, The Son of Man is to be betrayed into human hands, and they will kill him. And three days after being killed, he will rise again. But they did not understand what he was saying and were afraid to ask him. Then they came to Capernaum, and when he was in the house, he asked them, What were you talking about on the way? But they were silent, for on the way they had argued with one another who was the greatest. He sat down, called the twelve, and said to them, Whoever wants to be first must be last of all and servant of all. Then he took a little child and put it among them, and taking it in his arms, he said to them, Whoever welcomes one such child in my name welcomes me, and whoever welcomes me welcomes not me, but the one who sent me. The Gospel of the Lord. Praise, Praise to you, O Christ. Christ. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be acceptable unto you, O Lord, our Maker and Redeemer. Amen. I read that Leonard Bernstein was once asked, Who, what's the most difficult instrument in the orchestra to play, to which he immediately replied, second fiddle. Then he explained, I can get plenty of first violinists, but to find one who will play second violin with as much enthusiasm, now that is a challenge. And yet if no one plays second fiddle, we have no harmony. The hardest thing, Leonard Bernstein said, is to find someone willing, enthusiastically, not to be number one. Which takes us to today's gospel text and a conversation between Jesus and his disciples where we realize that Jesus is fully aware that his time in this world is drawing ever closer to an end. He has been doing what he came to do and drawing huge crowds watching him do, but not everyone in the crowds has been singing, O come, let us adore him, as swirling around him also has been an ever-building undercurrent of opposition. Note to followers of Jesus, do and say what he would have you do and say, and not everyone will cheer. And Jesus is fully aware of that and fully aware, too, of where that will lead. He knows full well that all of this is leading to a cross. And in the Gospels, you can see that he wanted not just personally, but also for his disciples to be prepared for that. And so in today's text, he says to them, the Son of Man is to be betrayed into human hands, and they will kill him. And three days later, he will rise again. And Mark writes that he says that clearly. In fact, in Mark's Gospel, this is the second time that he said that to them clearly. But the disciples, Mark says, didn't understand what Jesus meant and were afraid to ask him. Question, do you think they were afraid to ask because they couldn't understand or possibly because they weren't sure they entirely necessarily wanted to understand? Like, for example, when we hear Jesus say things like, love your enemy, or sell what you have and give to the poor, or forgive those who wrong you, and well, do we sometimes then not ask any questions because we understand him just enough 
to know that we don't necessarily want to understand him any better than that? I mean, for example, if we do up and tell him that we don't know what he means and we want him to explain when he says, sell what you have and give to the poor, and we ask him that, and what if he tells us that what he means is sell what you have or don't buy some of it in the first place and give to the poor? Maybe we sometimes don't ask. Maybe the disciples that day didn't ask, not because they and we didn't understand him at all, but because they and we understand him just enough to be afraid of wanting to understand him any better. I don't know. All I do know is what it says. He starts talking to them about suffering and dying, and they don't understand and afraid of whatever it is they're afraid of. They also don't ask. They just keep walking. Jesus apparently was a little bit off to himself as they continued to walk because a little later, when they got to where they were going, Capernaum, he asked them, he knew, but he asked them, what were you talking about on the way? And again they were silent. This time, however, it was because they were embarrassed. Why? Because they had every single reason to be. Why? Because on the way, Mark tells us they had been arguing as to which of them was the greatest of them. The disconnect is staggering. With him talking about suffering and dying and them then jumping immediately into an argument about who in their 12 police violin section is sitting in the first chair. But I don't judge them for that, for I can think of too many times when the disconnect between the ways and words of Jesus and the ways and words of me has been staggering too. We aren't told whether or not Jesus sighed before he said what he said next, although a sigh is very easy to imagine before what he said next was, if you want to be first of all, be last of all. If you want to be the greatest of all, be a servant to all. What Jesus says, maybe more clearly than all of us want to understand, is that greatness in his kingdom is not found in stepping on or over whoever you have to step on or over to get to the top of the ladder. Greatness in his kingdom, rather, is found in the compassion you show for your neighbor who, in many cases, having been stepped on and over, over and over again, finds themselves at the bottom of the ladder. Greatness in my kingdom, Jesus says, in other words, is in so many ways the exact opposite of what the world keeps shouting to try to teach you, for greatness in my kingdom, he said, isn't about being looked up to or noticed. It's about caring for those who are looked down on or unnoticed. And then, realizing that none of this is soaking in still, he calls a young child to him. And he says, pay attention to the little ones. For if you welcome them, you welcome me. To get the full effect of those words today, it is important to realize the difference between the status of children in Jesus' time and in our own. Despite the shameful number of reports we hear of child abuse these days, our culture is nevertheless still radically more child-centered than the culture into which Jesus first spoke, because compared to adults back then, and especially I'm talking about adult males back then, children back then were the very symbol of lack of status. They were viewed as little more than property. They had virtually no rights. 
Which means, of course, that in that day, those days, there was nothing to be gained by. There was no, I'll scratch your back, you scratch mine reward for paying attention to a child. But Jesus does precisely that. And while doing that, he raises his gaze to the twelve. And beyond them, he raises his gaze to us. And what the gaze in his eyes in that moment surely says to us is, follow me. Follow me on a path where greatness is found in seeing, caring for, loving, helping the little ones. Including not only the little ones who are children, but also the little ones who are in fact all whom society and too often the church as well says don't matter. If you want to be great, Jesus says, find the little ones, seek them out, welcome them. And then here comes a promise. There's a promise that he adds to those marching orders. To do that, Jesus said, to seek out and welcome the little ones, the children, the helpless, be they two or 102. Jesus says, is to seek out and welcome Jesus himself. Jesus clearly calls the community of those gathered around him to be a community which gives status to those who have no status, to give importance to those who are called unimportant, and to reach out in love to those to whom no one else is reaching. That, says Jesus, as opposed to the supposed greatness striven for in our lookout for number one and be number one world, is truly great. With greatness, that's the real thing. Question, are you great? Don't answer. It's a trick question. Because for Jesus, greatness is always linked to humility. And to claim greatness for yourself isn't humble. So don't even ask the question, are you great? It's a booby-trapped question every single time. Here's a better question. Knowing how Jesus defines greatness, are you in any concrete ways, following him. Have you done anything for anybody else lately? Have you done anything for anybody else whom nobody else is even thinking of doing something for? Have you offered something of yourself to someone who had nothing to offer you in return? Have you done anything good because it was good for somebody who wasn't you? And do you ever do any of that anonymously so that nobody else even can praise you or applaud? Are you, in other words, not claiming greatness, which is never a great thing to do, but living greatness? That's the real thing because it does things faithful to the one who said and says still, if you want to be something, Reach out to those whom the world says are nothing. For in touching them, you are in fact touching me. And in welcoming them, you are in fact welcoming me. Someone told me, I don't know if it's true, but someone told me that in the days of the old stagecoach, you could book first, second, or third class seats. When you got in the coach, however, there was no first, second, or third class section. Everything looked the same. It was only when the stagecoach came to a steep hill or another obstacle that the difference could be seen, because on steep hills, first-class passengers got to stay in the coach. 
Second class passengers had to get out and walk, and third class passengers had to get out and push. And surely the stagecoach brass would have told you that their most important and greatest customers were those first class folks, the one who could had the deep enough pockets to fork over the first class fares. When roads got muddy or steep, however, it was the third class passengers that you were glad to have with you because they got out and made a difference. Even when it meant working up a sweat or getting a little muddied. Which, of course, is, if that's true, given the fact that any number of our neighbors on any given day are feeling that their lives are up against steep hills or mired in mucky mud holes, is the same thing Jesus is saying this morning to his church. The greatest are those who get out and make a difference, right in those places where difference makers are needed, even if that means working up a sweat and getting a little muddied. Be that mud caked upon you, sometimes literally, other times verbally, and possibly sometimes painfully. Indeed, if we want to take him completely at his word, what Jesus says is that the greatest are those who get out in the world and make a difference, even when that means, in one way or another, taking up a cross. Talking about this text, someone asked me, does this be a servant stuff? I mean, we're all supposed to be followers. Don't we need leaders too? And the answer is that, of course, we need leaders. We'll flounder without leaders. But what I hear Jesus saying is that in the church and in the world, at Gloria Day and in the ELCA and in Des Moines and Washington too, as Lutherans, as Christians, as Democrats and Republicans, what we need are servant leaders. Those who don't do what they do in order to prove or provide for the greatness of them, but rather do what they do for what is great for all. Of course we need leaders, but we need servant leaders, not power-hungry leaders. For greatness, when Jesus is the one defining the terms, and as Christ's church, Jesus is the one defining the terms, in his definition... Greatness is about making a difference in the lives of others, especially those little ones who at 2 or 22 or 102 don't right now have it so great. Which, of course, very much rhymes with our reading from James today, doesn't it? Who is wise and understanding among you? Show by your good life that your works are done with gentleness born of wisdom. But if you have bitter envy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not be boastful and false to the truth. Such wisdom does not come from above, but is earthly, unspiritual, devilish. For where there is envy and selfish ambition, there will also be disorder and wickedness of every kind. But the wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, willing to yield, full of mercy and good fruits, without a trace of partiality or hypocrisy, and a harvest of righteousness is sown in peace for those who make peace. Those conflicts and disputes among you, where do they come from? Do they not come from your cravings that are at war within you? You want something and you don't have it, so you commit murder. And you covet something, you cannot obtain it, so you engage in disputes and conflicts you do not have because you do not ask. 
You, you ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly in order to spend what you get on your pleasures. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Draw near to God and God will draw near to you. That last verse, draw near to God and God will draw near to you, is a lovely verse, of course, but we have to be careful with it, lest we let it draw us away from the fact that in Jesus, the God who does come to take up a cross and to die, we discover a God of grace who draws near to us not when we've drawn near to him, but rather precisely when we've turned from him, rejected him, sinned against him, done our literal damnedest to rid the world of him. But that's another sermon for another time. <clears throat> for now, what I want to say is that draw near to God and God will draw near to you is a verse I see and hear best when I hear it holding hands with what Jesus said in the gospel today. When taking that little child into his arms, what he says is, whoever welcomes one such child in my name welcomes me, and whoever welcomes me welcomes not me but the one who sent me. Which at the very least is surely to say that we draw near to God not when we turn our eyes from the world in religion and piety, but rather when we turn and reach toward the world's needs in compassion and service. Or to combine James and Jesus, draw near to those in need, and you will draw near to Jesus. And in drawing near to Jesus, you are drawing near to the God who is ever near and with you always. Or to paraphrase Jesus and James and Leonard Bernstein, God being the greatest of all, Drawing near to God the way Jesus defines it <clears throat> isn't about playing first violin or second violin. Greatness, the way Jesus defines it, is found in reaching out to those who don't have a violin. Whether the violin they lack is a meal on their table, clothes on their back, a roof over their heads, or Jesus in their hearts. Amen.